Amen. Thank you, choir and musicians, reminding us <clears throat> the truth that Jesus is Lord. Thanks, Aaron. You know, as Christians, we, we acknowledge that Jesus is sovereign, that he is Lord of all, and we align our lives with that reality. We live as if Jesus is the Lord whom he says he is. We submit ourselves to his lordship. For many of us, we make Jesus Lord of our hearts, but we don't make him Lord of our thoughts, Lord of our service, as we just sang, or as the choir just reminded us of. Uh, thank you for that beautiful reminder that as Christians, we are to submit every part of our lives to the lordship of he who is the Lord of all. Thank you again, choir. Uh, I, I want to start with a deep thought this morning. We're going to continue our series of how our lives should all point to the gospel, the singular purpose of everything being for the gospel. And this theme for the month of June is really taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which we're going to be in this morning. And before we, we jump into our text, I, I want to start with a deep thought, okay? So as I used to tell teenagers, put your floaties on, okay? We're going to go straight to the deep end for just a, a quick minute. I've been thinking a lot about why I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? What is it that you find compelling about the claims of Christianity. And ultimately, what I, I think, it, it comes down to what we believe is right and what we believe is good and what we believe is true. And I've, I have found personally that, that the triune God of the universe, the God that the kids at Century Kid learned about, the, the awe and wonder of that high and holy God, the God of the Bible, that he is the most right the most good and the most true being in all of the cosmos. And I hope you're here today because you agree. If not, I hope you can be persuaded. But how do we know that? The, the, the question really is how do we know God? How do we know the character of God? How do we know the heart of God? If we don't know God, then we can't really weigh his goodness against the, the claims of other religions, of other false gods, of the things of this world either. You know, John Wesley was an Anglican minister who you know, became inadvertently the founder of Methodism, and he's credited with coming up with a four-fold way of knowing God and knowing about God. We call this the Wesleyan quadrilateral. He didn't write that down. That was pinned on him later by some scholars. The foundation of the, the quadrilateral is God's word, the Holy Scriptures. How do we know God? We look to his word, his revealed written word. And then on top, kind of holding it together, is tradition. There's a lot of smart, godly people who've gone before us and lived this Christian life. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, okay? We, we live holding that connection of church history of all that God has done in and through the church over the last 2,000 years. There's a rich spiritual legacy of, of truth and, and mission and goodness. And on the sides of the quadrilateral, that's a hard word to say, are reason and experience. Okay, God gave us a mind. Christianity should be reasonable. We talked in our small group today about how there's you know, some elements that are mysterious to Christianity, but it's ultimately a, a reasonable religion. And then our own experience matters for knowing God. What can your life 
experience teach you about what is right and good and true. Your life experience is unique to you. My life experience is unique to me. And it can be a powerful instrument in pointing others to the rightness, the goodness, and the truth of the triune God. So turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In our, in our text for today, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul holds up his own life experience as an example for the, the young church in Corinth. We know that these you know, Christians in Corinth are struggling, right? Paul planted this little church in this very cosmopolitan city of Corinth, and they've got a lot of things backwards. They're, they're confused about a lot, and, and their church is kind of a, a disaster. It makes me feel like, hey, we're doing pretty good here at Woodmont. <laughs> they're caught up in popularity contest over, you know, which apostle, which preacher was better. Was it Paul, or was it Peter, or was it Apollos? And their leaders are the ones that write to Paul, asking him questions, and, and apparently the leaders of the church in Corinth are, are fairly immature. They're, they're not really solid in their faith. They're not necessarily as strong as they think they are in their faith. They're confused about Christian worship. They're, we're going to get to that in a few weeks. I uh, can't wait to Alan Wharton to teach us about how women should cover their heads. That's going to be great uh, from 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. They're, they're confused about the nature of Christian marriage and divorce and they seem to want to make Christianity about a, a system of do's and don'ts. The, you know, they want to make it a legalistic kind of religion like, like their old Judaism was for those that were Jewish because legalism is easy. Legalism is you just check the boxes and you are good. That's, that's not the gospel though. It's not about following the rules and, and, and being right according to your own actions. Last week, we saw how the Corinthians had written to Paul, and they wanted to know about these things, and they wanted to know about, among other things, whether or not they could eat food that had been offered to a pagan god in one of those temples that really became like a butcher shop in ancient Corinth. And they wanted a yes or no, but Paul's answer was really nuanced. It was really more of an encouragement to know God through Jesus Christ and let that intimacy of that relationship with God inform all of their actions. That being close to Jesus would subject their wills to God's will. And the gospel of Jesus, here's the thing, it frees us from all condemnation. We are literally free to do whatever we want, okay? I used to teach that to teenagers and they were like, what? My mom says I can't do this, this, and that. And I'm like, yeah, okay, you can't. But uh, you are under your parents' authority. But as Christians, we are free. Paul says all things are permissible. All things are, are free for Christians to do. But here's the thing. When we're born again, our desires change. When we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit in us, he aligns our will with God's will. The gospel opens up our lives to, to live giving ourselves away, to live selflessly, to live not curved in on ourselves, gazing at our own navels, but actually able to live open and free as we pour out our lives for the sake of God and others. We're free to give ourselves away selflessly. It's a beautiful way to live. 
Sometimes when answering someone's question, like these confused Corinthians, it's easiest to use an illustration from your own life. As a preacher, I often use illustrations from usually about how terrible my kids are, but uh, no, they're wonderful. My kids are, are perfect because Morgan is perfect. Uh, but <laughs> not because of me. Uh, but I have a lot of illustrations from my life, and that's what Paul's going to do here to show the power of the gospel in his own life as an example for the Corinthians to follow. So when you think about it, if someone wants to know about God and they know that you go to church, they know that you're a Christian, they know that you, know, you attend Woodmont or whatever it is, then everything that you do is telling them about who God is. They're gonna be looking to your life to inform them about this God that you profess to follow. So when they, they see you acting one way, but they know that you believe, you claim to believe this about God, what are you telling them about God? You know, it's, it's not that you're not evangelizing. Whatever you do as a Christian is telling people about God. The question is, are you giving them good information or not? Are you telling them what is true about who God is, or are you giving them false information? If you are a self-professed Christian, your life is constantly telling people about who God is. So our outline for today is, is called your life as a sermon. You're all preaching. You're all ministers. You're all preaching with your life. And the advice that Paul gives to us, that the Bible gives to us, that God gives to us, is to make it about the gospel. Make your sermon centered on the gospel. When I was in seminary, we read a book by a guy named Brian Chapel called Christ-Centered Preaching. And, and the point of the book was that in all of your preaching as a minister, it should point to the gospel because the Bible points to the gospel. Every page of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus Christ and every page of the New Testament points back to Jesus Christ as the center of the story of everything ever. The, the hinges of history changed with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God in the flesh, as we just sang that he took on flesh to ransom us. There was so much more to it though. His resurrection breaks the power of death and sin forever. The, the gospel is the, the climax of the story, that point after which nothing will be the same. Our lives should point to the gospel with all that we do. If our lives are gonna be an effective sermon, then they must be centered on the gospel. All right, enough of, of me talking, let's get into this rich text. The first thing we're gonna see is that we should acknowledge and, and be aware of the amazing freedom that we have in Christ. That's point number one on your outline. Live knowing, live in awe, really, of your God-given rights in Christ. Paul knew of his many blessings. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm so quick to complain. I'm so quick to whine. My, my default mode is, is cynicism, right? But, but Paul knows that he has these beautiful, rich blessings in the gospel. Look at verses one to seven. He says, am I not free? Am I not a, an apostle, a messenger? Have I not seen Jesus, our risen Lord? Or are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least 
I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Okay, at first this sounds pretty defensive, right? Paul's saying this is my defense. I, I struggle with being defensive. I think really defensiveness is, is pride, really, is what it is. There's some prideful part of my fallen flesh that wants to push back against any criticism and to prove my point as the right one. On the one hand, there, there were some people in Corinth who doubted Paul's legitimacy as an apostle. They said he didn't have the, the credentials of the real apostles. So he is kind of giving a defense, but more importantly than giving a defense, Paul is giving them an example of what he talked about in chapter eight, about giving up one's rights. And he's saying, look, if anybody has rights, it's this guy, okay? Because I've done all these things. I've, I've been, you know, an apostle. I've seen Jesus with my own eyeballs, and, and surely I'm, I'm due these rights. And, and he's going to say, but, but I don't hold any of those rights because of the gospel. He's been saying that we should give up our rights for the sake of others, especially for those who are weaker in their faith than we are in order to help those who are a little slower in their race to come alongside of us. We freely give up our God-given amazing rights. We don't hold them for our own selfish benefit. Paul's using reason and logic to show that, again, he has as much right as anyone, as Peter, as, as John, or, or James, uh, the, the sons of thunder, also James, the, the brother of, of Jesus, Jude, the, the brother of Jesus, these leaders in the early church, they're all like on the Mount Rushmore of early Christendom, right? And Paul's right up there with those guys. He's one of those initial, you know, most amazing missionary of, of all time. But he had, you know, a, a genuine encounter with Jesus. But remember these leaders in Corinth who wrote to Paul, they think that they're real strong in their faith. They think that they're mature because they know the gospel. They, they got it. And they, they received the Holy Spirit. They were saved. And they say, we're, we're in, baby. We're at the top of this thing. We, we know the plan of God to redeem all things through sending his son Jesus and, and to restore what was broken back to himself. We got it, baby. We are the top. We know stuff that people and angels would love to know. And Paul's saying, yeah, look, you have these rights, but if anyone has the rights that come from knowing the gospel, it's me, the one who explained the gospel to you. And then he uses some real world illustrations. Soldiers are due their provisions, right? Vineyard owners can walk around and pick their own grapes and, and pop them and enjoy them. And shepherds are due a little uh, sheep's milk cheese. You ever had manchego cheese in Spain? Did you get some of that ebb and y'all over there? Man, that stuff is good, sheep's milk. Do, we, we see this principle in everyday life. And we see it in scripture too. He goes on, look at how Paul uses biblical text to make the same point. 
in verses 9, uh, 8 through 12. Look at verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? And then here comes the turning point in verse 12b, the last part of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. The gospel is primal. It's the primacy uh, place, first place. The most important thing to Paul is that the gospel would advance. The pure, unadulterated, unfiltered good news of Jesus Christ. That's what matters most. And Paul's saying that he and his fellow workers put up with everything. They endure all things, including giving up their rights in order to make a way for God's word and God's will to advance, for the gospel to move without distractions and without hindrances. I know the SBC has been in the news a lot lately, okay? And yes, our church is duly aligned. We, we do give some money to SBC causes. You can designate your money uh, away from SBC things, but every time I read about our denomination or other denominations, and the, the scourge of sexual abuse, which I'm praying this week in Anaheim, our messengers will uh, firmly uh, resolve to uh, deal decisively uh, with abuse in a strong way. I think the Lord has shaken some things loose, and I think this is uh, painful, but I, I'm, I'm hopeful that our churches, at least Baptist churches in the U.S., will be healthier uh, so that the gospel can advance because, and I think in order for the gospel to advance, we have to deal honestly with the mess of sin, right? In order to see the gospel advance because what matters most is not that our churches grow bigger, not that our churches grow more important, not that we get more followers on Twitter, but that we are able to see the gospel move forward, to see the good news of Jesus spread throughout our nation and the world. That's the priority. And in order to do that, I do think that means taking some decisive action in order to make sure that churches are safe and that the most vulnerable among us are protected as the Lord cares for them. All right, so Paul doesn't take any support from these churches. He doesn't prohibit it, though, for other missionaries and other apostles. Look at verse 13. Some scholars think he's trying to say, it's okay if people do take money from the churches. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Thank you, Paul, for adding that so I can have a salary and provide for my family. That's nice. You may have taken away from the first 12 verses. Then why do we pay our ministers? It, it, we do think that there is an element of ministers that we do support in order to, to lead the church and shepherd the church. But none of these rights matter when you live for something bigger than yourself. That's point number two on your outline. Paul's passionate about giving up these rights for the sake of the gospel. 
He's, he's giving up these rights because he, he wants to see the gospel move forward more than anything. And he's so passionate. Look at verse 15. I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. The gospel is that I'm broken and flawed. It's all God who's done this amazing thing, not me. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. You know, there are all these guys in Corinth who were professional orators who would uh, gather a crowd around them and they'd say, for $5, you can hear me speak. And people would pay the money and they would preach these eloquent sermons about how to advance in your social life and how to climb the social ladder and, and advance your position in society. Paul's saying, I don't do that. I don't charge for, for giving away the gospel because the gospel isn't about uh, being a religious charlatan. I subscribe to a daily newsletter called Ministry Watch, and it's, it's really depressing to read it every morning. Usually it calls out some kind of scandal uh, in the evangelical church, uh, and every day it's like there's a new scandal at some Christian college or at some church or, or some uh, way that funds have been uh, misused or misappropriated or abuse, again, that has been rampant. It, it's, it is depressing, but it's important, I think, to know what's going on in these churches and to live and to work above reproach and to remind ourselves of how important that is. I'm grateful for our, our leadership in this church for operating with complete transparency and, and building trust by showing that we have nothing to hide. All of our finances are made available uh, for anyone that wants them. Our finance committee meet is today. Uh, we, are, we are not hiding anything here at Woodmont, which I think is really important to live above reproach. It's kind of like Paul saying, we're not doing this for monetary gain. We're not trying to do something that's subversive and under the radar. All we're trying to do is be faithful to the calling of Christ. And that's what I want for Woodmont Baptist Church as well. And more importantly, Paul uh, doesn't want to take away anything from the gospel. He paid his own way so no one could accuse him of profiting off the, the gospel or of being beholden to wealthy benefactors. I know some pastors who are in smaller churches and have, you know, two or three families that are really carrying the church financially, you know what I mean? And they really feel like they have to please those two or three families in order to, to keep the lights on in the building. And, and woe to us if we ever are beholden to one or two people. It's not about that. It's about being faithful to the gospel above all. We're gonna be okay if we're faithful to the gospel no matter what happens. So Paul's reward, he's saying, is not some kind of life he's built for himself. It's not some status that he's achieved, but his reward is simply the great joy that comes from seeing the gospel advance and change lives. Just seeing the gospel advance and change lives of those who uh, are around him. So Paul's been showing these you know, strong leaders how to give up their rights for the sake of others. Now he focuses on those others. 
in verses 19 to 23, he's gonna show us how to live to make others glad in God. That's point number three on your outline. Live to make others glad in the gospel. He says, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in the beautiful blessings of the gospel. It's like when you share something with people, when you enjoy something like a new song or a, a sports team. I love watching our UT fans talk about baseball. They come in here and they're like, did you see that game? They're cheering them on today. You know, Ron's got his orange shirt on today. He's just jazzed up. You know, I love seeing them because it, it's more fun to share the joy of something with someone else. It doesn't, it doesn't divide the joy, it just multiplies it exponentially. That's the way the gospel works. It's multiplied in its blessings when we share it with others. You know, I think Woodmont is a, a great church. We do a lot of things well. We're a very warm, very authentic family of faith. I love that about this church. We have so many who have such a great heart for ministry and, and meeting needs in the name of Jesus and, you know, driving down to Waverly and, and helping build homes or, uh, you know, I, I've seen just incredible ministry in our church, but I think we have some work to do in cultivating a heart for evangelism. Those 250,000 tourists, instead of me snubbing my nose at them, we should be concerned how many of them are lost and how many of them are searching for truth and for hope. Apart from Christ, they have none. I know that most of our people are genuinely humble and they're, they're not above standing in solidarity with those who are, are not uh, you know, in as high a place as they are. I've seen our church members pray with their arms around uh, homeless people, around Muslim folks. I've seen that who've come to our food pantry for help. I've seen our people sit on dirt floors in Guatemala and, and gratefully eat whatever is served to them. You know, why do we do this? Ultimately, it's because we care deeply about those people, every part of them, especially the part of them that will live forever, their souls. Soul winning is an old fashioned term, kind of like born again, we talked about in our small group today, but these are beautiful, beautiful terms. Soul winning is part and parcel of being a follower of Christ. We've been given a great commission and we should take it seriously. Making converts is, is not our job, okay? Presenting the gospel is our job. The, the one who makes converts is the Holy Spirit. Our job is simply to gospel, that's evangelize, that's what that means, to tell the good news. The results are up to God. Charles Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher, in, in his book, The Soul Winner, writes, it's not our way of putting the gospel, nor our method of illustrating it that wins souls, but it's the gospel itself that does the work in the hands of the Holy Ghost. 
And to him, we must look for the thorough conversion of humans. We're to be faithful in evangelism, but the fruitfulness is up to God. I love how John Piper puts it. He says that our life's purpose is to join with God's purpose in furthering the gospel by gladly living to make others glad in God. Gladly living to make others glad in God. He says, the one supreme, all-pervading, all-unifying mission of your life is to joyfully and sacrificially declare and demonstrate that the glory of Christ is more precious than life and thus to help all people, including all the ethnic groups and all the religions of the world, discover the glory of Christ as their only hope of true and everlasting joy. That mission provides great clarity to our lives, whether in our studies, what job we take, where we move, how we raise our kids, how we spend our money, it all should be subjugated under that purpose to see God move in and through us in order to make others glad in him, no matter what the cost, even our own lives. That leads us to our final point. If our lives are to be a, a powerful sermon that preaches grace and truth to a world that needs it, then we must live with purpose. We must live with a singularity of purpose. Look at verses 24 and 27. These are great for those of you who are into sports like me. Runners, we got a track coach here today. Uh, runners love this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. I told Aubrey when she got back from Centricid, I said, jewels and your crown. Thank you for going to Centricid. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You know, I got roped into running a full marathon back in 2014. That was for a charity that, that one of my friends, my boss's wife actually ran this, uh, or she worked for a nonprofit. It was actually in Ukraine. It was providing housing for orphans in Ukraine. I said, okay, if I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do it right. And I went to Fleet Feet, and you know, I ran outside on the sidewalk, and this guy got down and put his eyeballs on the ground and watched my arches, and whether I was overpronating or not, you know, and he recommended a, a neutral shoe, and he, he sold me, you know, a very expensive shoe and a, a very expensive insert to go in the very expensive shoe, and, and, all the, and I got all the gear, I had the hydration kits, you know, and I was, yeah, Ryan, you know about all this stuff, and I was into it, man, and I ran hundreds of miles in training, literally hundreds of miles in preparation for the race. I was following a plan that told me exactly how much to run and what kind of stretches to do and what kind of strengthening exercises to do and, and when to take off days. And I had to have a strategy because I didn't know what I was doing. And, and if you're gonna be successful in anything, you have to have a strategy and to be purposeful about it. You know, we were talking about college athletes this past week. Uh, Rachel was a Division I athlete at Sanford. When you're a D1 athlete, your college experience is very different from my college experience, where I played pickup basketball with my buddies all day, uh, I studied a little bit. But uh, when you're an athlete at D1 school, you're, you're regimented. 
They, they have your study hall hours, they have your training hours, they have your recovery hours, they have everything is, is set for you. Even your summer is dictated. My sister-in-law was the captain of the soccer team at Belmont, and in order to make sure that they stayed in shape over the summer, the first week of camp back in, to school in late July, they had to run two miles in under 12 minutes to make sure that they were still in shape over the summer. Pretty intense. Your whole life is built around that schedule because you have to have a plan in order to be successful. All the elements of success in our lives mean we have to have a singularity of purpose for our lives. Do we really believe that God is the greatest good? Do we really believe that he has a plan to make all things new through Jesus? Do we really believe in heaven and hell? And that the stakes are as high as they possibly can be for our lives. If we believe that, then let's live a life of singular purpose. Let's make the gospel the center of all that we do. Let's resolve now, like Paul, to not waste our lives, but to preach a sermon with our lives that the world will see Jesus in. There was a great cricketer. You know what cricket is? Back in the late 1800s in England named C.T. Studd, Charles Thomas Studd, he went to the finest boys' school in England, Eton. Uh, he was a student there and he gave his life to Christ. He was confronted with the gospel. He responded. He said, I got down on my knees and I did say thank you to God. And right then and there, joy and peace came into my soul. I knew then what it was to be born again. And the Bible, which had been so dry to me before, became everything. C.T. was the captain of the cricket team at Eton, and he went on to, to national fame as the best player at Trinity College at Cambridge University. And in 1884, after his brother George was taken seriously ill, C.T. was confronted by the question, what is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? He had to admit that since his conversion six years earlier, he had been in an unhappy, backslidden state. And as a result of seeing his brother almost die, he said, I knew that cricket would not last, and honor would not last, and nothing in this world would last, but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. He and six of his friends left school for the mission field in China. He gave away his entire inheritance, a significant inheritance, to missions and to churches and he wrote a poem that he's still famous for, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. You only have one life that will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. What kind of sermon are you preaching with your life? What are you telling the world by how you live? Do you have a greater purpose beyond your own rights? Are you happily giving yourself away for the sake of making others glad in God? Let's live with that singular purpose, knowing that our reward is indeed great. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have shown us how to live a life of significance, only a life that is built around you, a life that is centered on the gospel, on the good news of what you've done for us will be a life that, that lasts and that has significance beyond ourselves. God, help us not to waste our lives by fighting for our own individual rights, 
and for what we can get for ourselves. Help us to, to open up through your gospel and be able to pour ourselves out freely and happily as we see your good news transform lives around us. God, give us a burden for those who are lost and searching. Remind us that the stakes are as high as they possibly can be. God, we know that, that you have a plan to redeem sinners, and that plan is to, to work through the gospel in your church. I pray that you would give Woodmont a passion for evangelism. May you start with, with the leadership. May you start with me. God, I pray for my friends and my neighbors who I've been praying for and I've been evangelizing for years. Lord, I pray that you would help me to seek out those conversations in which I can explain the gospel more fully. And God, most of all, may my life be consistent with the gospel. May it be conformed to the gospel. May it be informed by the gospel. May it be completely centered on what you've done for us in Jesus so that my friends see it and they give you the glory and may they come to a saving knowledge of you as their Lord and Savior. God, I thank you for each member here and their own unique life experience. I pray that you would use each person right here in this room, use their lives to be a sermon that teaches the world about your goodness, your truth, and your grace. Lord, we love you and pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. What an amazing opportunity we have to, to share the gospel with the world that desperately needs it. Uh, we're gonna have a time of response now, and I'm gonna invite you to, to respond in your heart however the Lord leads you. Maybe you've never freely received that gift of salvation. Maybe you think you did, and you've been concerned about how sincere you were in your prayer when you asked Jesus to come into your heart. Thank God it's not up to your sincerity or mine, but it's up to the sovereign grace of Jesus Christ to save us. Maybe you've never really depended on that grace. Maybe you've been depending on your own ability to be good and check the boxes off. If that's you and you need to surrender to God's grace today and receive the gift of salvation, there's no better time to do so than right now. I'll be here to talk with you about it. Maybe you've never been baptized by immersion like Jesus was as a sign of believer's baptism, a profession, a public profession of your faith in Christ. Maybe you wanna be baptized, I'd love to talk with you about that. Maybe you're ready to join Woodmont and be a member here in covenant with us to be a part of this particular expression of the body of Christ. I'd love to talk with you about becoming a member. Whatever it is that you need to do today, respond in your heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ as we stand and sing our hymn of response.